Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 359 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in another instalment of My Genre's Status, we talk to RLF writers who found defining their work difficult or who struggle with the limitations that being pigeonholed in a genre puts on their creativity, considering issues such as the way different countries categorise literature, the challenges of hybrid forms, and the need to keep pushing the boundaries. For writers, genre can be make or break. As soon as you have a manuscript that you hope someone else might publish and sell, you are asked to define your work. And how you do so can have a marked impact on how that work is marketed and received. Yet, for many writers, this creates problems. In this episode, we talk to writers who have found themselves at odds with the idea of genre and see the problems of having their work pigeonholed. For crime writer Doug Johnston, the boundary lines between different genres are often much blurrier than we may like to think. I know plenty of crime writers who have always read crime and always wanted to write crime novels. I'm not really that kind of person. I have always just read anything, really. My tastes as a teenager and a bit older than that in the 20s were probably more towards literary stuff, but kind of edgy, transgressive literary stuff, like Irvin Welsh or Marvin Caller, you know, I'd certainly not, I've never been interested in any canon of writing. That's immediately a turn off for me, anything that, if anyone says, this is an absolute classic, you must read it, I'll, I'll know that they won't like it. But I think that actually crime has gone up a huge amount in terms of how it's regarded, mainly thanks to, you know, writers like Denise Minor, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, who are very obviously writing beautifully crafted and plotted books that are deep in character, they've got plenty of social commentary, they're dealing with the human condition. And in many ways, Ian Rankin always makes this point that crime fiction is actually better placed to do things like social comment, because you can actually have a much broader view of the society that you're dealing with if you're looking at it from the point of view of, for example, in his case, a police detective. Because they are having to deal with judges and lawyers and criminals and, you know, so the whole spectrum. Whereas it could be argued that, you know, a lot of literary fiction is rather myopic in its sort of viewpoint of the class and the race and all this kind of the people they're, they're dealing with. So I think it has been gone up and up. And there's been, I mean, I mean, you would undeniably say that something like Marlon James's book, which won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago, it was a crime novel. It had killings in the title. It was about murder, you know. Someone like Denise, for example, is writing stuff that is quite obviously what would normally be classed as literary fiction by anyone who was who had a brain. So, but it's a crime novel. It's the same thing. His bloody project, Alan One Yang, Craig Burnett, which is a brilliant novel, but it was quite obviously, you know, it was a crime novel. It was also a literary novel. It was also a historical novel. You know, it, was, it did all these things. And I think that the boundaries between genres are, if not completely broken down, are certainly broken down quite a lot in this day and age. Courtier Newland agrees that genre can often be unnecessarily limiting. As such, he often resists defining what his work is. I feel that I'm a genreless writer. I don't classify myself as, as any kind of a genre. It's interesting that I like to work in genres that other people might sneer and look down at. And I do think about this sometimes as well. If I just did that kind of like literary stuff just all the time, would it mean that I'd be seen completely differently. 
but I feel like I'd almost be looking down on myself. I'd be negating something about myself. I'd be, you know, we all talk about, oh, we've got the freedom of expression, freedom to write. You know, we're kind of forced into doing stuff, in a sense, by just peer pressure. You know, they're saying, oh, you've got to write about this in this way. And I just don't ever want to, like, feel that, feel that way. Like, like I, I can't write about know vampires or I can't write about science fiction or I can't you know I can't do anything actually you know I can't write about kids from a council estate because you know you shouldn't be writing about that you know um I just, I just want to go wherever I want to go so I think we should you know lose this idea that genre dictates quality you know but I don't know if that will ever happen and also you know literary fiction is a genre in itself you know, as everyone knows, but no one seems to want to admit that. For literary biographer Claire Harmon, writing in what is a hybrid genre in many senses can be problematic. People don't kind of jump up and say, oh, I'd love to read a literary biography often. And they certainly, I mean, you never get a young person when they're asked, what would you like to do when you grow up, Johnny, saying, oh, I'd like to be a literary biographer. It's just something that that doesn't seem to occupy a very reasonable space in the world. It's there and it's enjoyable, but it's not the hot end of non-fiction. Non-fiction itself is, as Michael Holroyd has pointed out, a very negative, I call it genre, (laughs) non-fiction. It sounds as if one ought to be being something else. So it does seem to be a little bit of a backwater and some people, of course, have always thought of literary biography as a bit of a cheat anyway. You know, it's a mixture between history and and fiction in a way. I mean, it doesn't seem to have any any factual validity. And new historicists and literary theorists of the 1970s and 80s shot down biography as being worthless. You know, even history, of course, was very suspect. But biography, you know, where you have so many fanciful thoughts being introduced and even the narrative structure being imposed on another person's life. It was certainly talked of as if it was really rather worthless. So I don't feel it's valued enough, actually, in in the world of, of publication. Sometimes I just would absolutely love to be a fiction writer because, for a start-off, you wouldn't have to do all the notes and the sources and all the research. You could just write what you liked. Plus, you would never be taken to task for <laughs> any of the things that you've said. I mean, nobody can start a, a, a sort of lawsuit against a, a fiction writer, but many biographers have had agitated readers threatening them after publication or before publication. So I, I feel that fiction writers and poets live in a much more ring-fenced and respected, ultimately a more respected genre. But of course, a lot of novelists and poets then suffer from the sort of writer's block which a non-fiction writer certainly can suffer from but is less likely to suffer from because at least when you have a task you can sit down and do it can't you you can sort of do the research you can really labor to complete the book but especially with somebody's life you do have a story to find and tell. Essayist Chris Arthur finds that his work is defined differently depending on where it is published in the world. Partly it goes back to Emerson and Emerson's impact on American letters. Partly because there have been some very effective people promoting the essay, Robert Atwan being one of them. And I think there are more places in which you can publish essays in the States. Some of the wonderful literary quarterlies in the States 
they, they have done so much to open doors to writers of all sorts. I mean, I, I can think of many journals in the States where I can offer work. I mean, of course, it will often be, be rejected. I'm not saying that they you know, automatically take it. But places that they, they will at least consider it. I can think of very few places this side of the Atlantic where, where that's the case. Th things have improved in the last decade, particularly in Ireland, interestingly. I mean, where both Irish pages and the Dublin Review are amenable to essays. But I think, by and large, if you want to publish essays, you'll be looking to the States. Like Harmon, Arthur has an issue with the negative aspects of the label non-fiction, specifically creative non-fiction. However, he is excited by the possibility of genres that are open-ended. Why don't you call it creative non-poetry or, you know, creative non-house painting? I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know. But if, if, the, if the title works to get work of a certain type into the public eye, who's mm. complaining? I mean, I don't really care what something is called. Um, it's also nice the way quite a few journals in the States now, I mean, as well as listing in their contents, poetry, fiction, non-fiction, Quite often now you'll find a section for transgenre or, you know, some other label that says doesn't quite fit in any of our categories, but we're interested in it nonetheless. And again, I think that's a very hopeful development um, because, again, it, it just it gives a writer more freedom. Nigel Cliff also often finds that where his work is published affects how it is perceived. However, he has yet to find a country that he feels has captured precisely the essence of his work. Since I write mostly for America, my books are usually classed as narrative non-fiction. In Britain, they might be labelled popular history. Neither's really exactly spot on. My writing tends to straddle biography and history with some of the techniques of fiction brought to bear on more or less scholarly research. Of course, I would say this, but to my mind, this makes the genre more demanding than the term popular suggests with its sniffy sense of lightweight or, or facile. First, you have to amass a vast heap of material from the archives and you're reading and visiting the places you're writing about. I still can't write about anywhere properly till I've actually been there. Then you need to organise it all and then you have to find the story. You can't really impose one. The process of crafting a narrative asks too many probing questions about your understanding of the material. It shines a harsh light on any non-sequiturs any obscurity in your character's motives, any gaps in your understanding. Narrative is a, is a powerful tool that makes you shave away till you have a sequence of cause and effect that makes logical and intuitive sense. In every non-fiction book I've written, there's been a grit in the oyster moment, the moment where the detail that's been bothering me, because it doesn't fit into my preconceived plan, turns out to hold the key to the whole story. Making a narrative out of a heap of bare facts is a rigorous and, and time-consuming business, Every time you add in something new, you have to stretch your mind to take in the shape of the whole story, to give the new information its proper weight and, and place. Done properly, narrative nonfiction doesn't need to be defended as a way to introduce readers to a new subject so they graduate to proper books. At its best, it's an exacting form that can both enthrall and inform. It should be exciting to read, of course, evoking characters, place and time in a compelling story but it also requires a long and hard journey that can lead to surprising and valid truths. And of course, if you do your job well, that journey should be as invisible as possible to the reader. If a non-fiction narrative appears natural and effortless, 
It's because a whole lot of sleepless nights and aching limbs and months of cutting, pruning and polishing have gone on long before it gets near the page. For Stephen Romer, not fitting into any marketable category is part of the point, particularly when you're a poet. I once went into, I think it was Waterstones on Oxford Street. I think I had some books I wanted to sell of my own. He said, well, we don't shift enough units. What he meant was we don't sell enough poetry books, we don't shift enough units, and therefore we could not stock your book, sir. That's become one of my watchwords about poetry, and one reason I think it's valuable is they don't shift enough units. I'm not worried about the minor status, perhaps, or the lesser status of poetry compared to fiction or biography in the sense of readership poetry will outlast. It is a monument, as Horace and Shakespeare said, that shall outlast other uses of language, probably. Baudelaire said he warned his friends not to start fiction because fiction will take you over. I have friends who've moved into fiction. There are all sorts of glamorous adjuncts and freebies and festivals attached to fiction that do not attach so much to poetry but they find it very hard to come back and they regret it that said poetry in the uk at any rate i think has become far less of a poor relation there are many festivals there are many prizes almost every large town has a poetry festival which is no bad thing as long as we remember that poetry must be the counter-language, the counter-statement, the resistor of commodification. I have a pet hate, which is hyperbole in language. I need you to do this, etc. I recently read someone announcing a poetry course saying, I am beyond excited to be doing this course. And that was a poetry course. How can you possibly use an expression like beyond excited when you are teaching poetry? It's an emotional lie. And... I hope at least the poets on our course put us straight about that. Fellow poet Gwyneth Lewis agrees that anxieties about genre can be unnecessary. While she is concerned about the slump in her genre status, she thinks that writers ought to focus on other things. What I observe in the newspapers and magazines these days concerns me because there's less and less room for poetry reviewing. I mean, that has declined strikingly in the last five years and certainly catastrophically in the last ten. So I'm very worried about that. But I think if you ask any one of those the groups within writing, I, I suspect that everybody would think that their own genre has the highest status. I think that poets certainly consider themselves to be at the top of the tree in terms of the demands of compression and concision and concentration. But uh, equally, you know, I've been writing plays, I find those so difficult, unbelievably difficult. So I wouldn't dare really to be snobbish about any other art form uh, or genre within writing, because I think they all have their difficulties. So uh, really, I, I... It just makes me laugh, the idea of being snobbish about any other genre, I think. Unless you've walked the walk... You know, you can't assume that you know anything about them. As for status anxiety within writers, I mean, get real. Nobody needs more writing, nobody wants more writing, and certainly not from you. So if we're lucky enough to be paid to do it occasionally, well then, I think you've had your reward already. But for some writers, the way a genre is perceived can have far-reaching implications. Children's writer Helena Drysdale 
feels that she and many of her colleagues can often be overlooked for opportunities because of misconceptions about the value and skill that goes into their work. Writers for children, I know from being a member of different children's writers' forums and talking to other writers for children that I think a lot of us do tend to feel underappreciated even by other writers in a sort of in a literary sense really a lot of people tend to feel that writing for children isn't really writing it's just putting a few words together and that anyone can really do it people tend to think that there aren't any sort of real stylistic issues or concerns about depth of character or plot um, or theme perhaps as much as there are in adult books, but I really strongly feel that all of those things do apply. If anything, you need to take more care, especially moral care. You do have to be careful about what you're saying and try and, you know, get your point across without being didactic. But I think there's a strong responsibility on a children's author to be a good example. Sounds terribly pompous, but create characters that children can identify with and aspire to be as well, I think. And so I think that's often underappreciated. And status-wise, I think there's also a problem in other areas of your life when you're a children's author. For example, in getting work teaching, I think that there is the idea that a children's author perhaps doesn't have the required sort of technical ability in teaching the craft and so they might not be considered for just general creative writing classes or novel writing courses but all the same technical aspects are still there but even in the industry and even in uh, the creative writing field I think that children's authors are sometimes sidelined in preference for uh, writers of adult novels. For Claire Shaw it is the nuts and bolts of language that dictate what a piece of writing is doing and how it should be perceived. It's about a kind of micro-attention to what goes on within the, the kind of very structures of language, and that's what really fascinates me. Now, it's not to say that that doesn't happen in prose. Clearly it does in, in really good prose, and I'd hold up like people like Ali Smith as an example of someone who does that beautifully, really skillfully. But for me, the microscopic t- attention to language takes priority in my own writing over things like narrative and plot. There's something about the physicality of poetry uh, that I just adore. For me, it feels like a really visceral, physical experience. And I always think it must be a bit like sculpture. So it's something about working with, with, with raw material and letting the raw material kind of govern, govern the shape that I kind of hear about in the process of sculpting and I think is, is directly paralleled in poetry. So things like texture, the texture of language and the way it feels in your mouth and the music of it and the rhythm of it and the drive of it and the way it looks on the page and the layout and, and what line break can do, the kind of magic of line break and emphasis and the way that all works with content and meaning and impact and intention all at the same time is, is the alchemy of poetry. So for me, that will always always take priority and, and any kind of intention to tell a story gets lost in that. So I think I, I, I come back to letting the possibility of language govern the process more than the, the kind of intention of wanting to do a particular thing with it. But while poetry may be her natural genre, 
Shaw feels it is unhelpful to have her work pigeonholed. Above all, she has a clear mission when she sits down to write. So the whole point of writing for me is that people listen and read and understand and that it has an impact and that it makes a real difference, whether it's just to a moment or whether it's to a life, that it it makes a difference to somebody. And I think you can do that in a very direct and and clear way. Um, So when I'm writing papers about personality disorder, when I'm writing papers about why this diagnosis isn't helpful and why there are other ways of viewing people who've been through trauma, I can do that very clearly and very directly and I can use references and I can build up a compelling argument and that can become part of a body of evidence that will then have a real measurable impact on practice and a real measurable impact on on individual people. So I'd say if there was a competition for me between genres, it's, it's for me between those. And that's why I describe myself as a writer rather than as a poet. I love writing that can bring the two things together. So in the last year, I've published um, a resource called Otis Doesn't Scratch, uh, which is a, a storybook resource for um, children who are living with self-injury. So not children who self-injure, but children who, young children who may have a parent who self-injures or an older sibling or a friend. And it's told in a very simple way. And I co-wrote the resource with an illustrator. So we, we literally have a children's book that uses a very simple narrative to, to kind of introduce uh, children to the topic and, and explain and, and inform around that topic. And then it's published alongside a very clearly, directly referenced guide for adults. And for me, there's a sort of joy in being able to bring a creative process and a very direct academic journalistic prose together. And for me, that, that, that's again where I would come back to myself as a writer. I do both. Whoever we are and whatever we produce, writers are united by one goal, to communicate. That was my genre status. The featured writers were... Doug Johnston, Courtney Newland, Claire Harmon, Chris Arthur, Nigel Cliff, Stephen Romer, Gwyneth Lewis, Helena Drysdale and Claire Shaw. You can find out more information about the writers featured in this podcast on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 359, which was recorded by the Writers Aloud team and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 360, Rhiannon Ties speaks with Anne Morgan about creative collaboration and adapting the classics for radio. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.